This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is episode number two. The butterflies are still there, but I think both of us feeling a little bit less nervous about taking over the rounds table. John, welcome back. What do we have in store today? So today we're going to talk a little bit more about some studies related to geriatric medicine. Uh, A few trials have come out recently that we're going to dive right into. Perfect. So the common thread and theme here will be studies related to older adults. So what do you have up first? So first, there was a study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine looking at scam awareness related to incident Alzheimer's dementia and mild cognitive impairment. This was a prospective cohort study. Cool. And what was the research question here? They wanted to know if low scam awareness predicted incidence of Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment. Gotcha. And what do you mean by a low scam awareness? Is this like if the duct cleaners are calling again, then I have my ducts cleaned or what? Yeah, you got it. I mean, we know that part of dementia is related to impairment in complex behaviors. And so they wondered if perhaps an inability to appreciate or understand that you might be getting scammed could be a manifestation of some of those pathological cognitive changes. Gotcha. And what was the study design here? This was a prospective cohort study from the Rush Memory and Aging Project. Participants had no known diagnosis of dementia. They had annual clinical evaluations, and in fact, everyone agreed to organ donation. Scam awareness was based on measures of some situational things, like openness to sales pitches, interests in investing in risky opportunities, or even self-awareness of vulnerability related to older age. Higher scores were indicative of lower scam awareness. They diagnosed mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's based on fairly standard clinical diagnoses. Now, interestingly, because of the autopsy data, they also looked at neuropathological indexes of Alzheimer's based on brain autopsy data, specifically beta amyloid plaques. Cool. This sounds like a fascinating study. And just to clarify, so when the study started, no one had dementia and then they were followed for five years thereafter and were assessed for dementia and the scam awareness was based back when they entered the study. Is that yeah, right? That's right. Gotcha. And what did the table one look like? Who was included here? So the mean age of participants ranged between 81 and 85. They had you know, reasonably high education, about 15 years of education. The majority of them were women. All right. And uh, what were the main results? So people with lowest scam awareness had higher rates of dementia and mild cognitive impairment. It ranged from 11 cases per thousand person years in the highest scam awareness group to 42 cases per thousand person years in the lowest scam awareness group. They also did some proportional hazard models adjusting for things like age, sex, education, and this showed that lower scam awareness was associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, about a 56% increased risk. They looked at similar effects for mild cognitive impairment, showing that lower scam awareness was associated with increased risk. They also did some sensitivity analyses that showed that the scam awareness was independent of someone's cognitive status. And that neuropathological data showed that the patients with low scam awareness had increased beta amyloid plaques throughout the brain. Yeah, that is just so interesting. I mean, the fact that these people who had high scam awareness, you know, they could sniff out this pyramid scheme or whatever, you know, that their rate of dementia was 11 per thousand person years. And then it's 42 per thousand person years for the people of low scam awareness. Like that's really fascinating. But what were the main limitations here? I guess one of the limitations is that this tool that they use for scam awareness, I mean, it's not validated. Other issues were that the majority of the population was white. So again, some concerns about generalizability. Gotcha. And the take home point here? The take home point is that low scam awareness does seem to be predictive of both mild cognitive impairment as well as Alzheimer's disease. 
And is this practice changing? Or are you now going to include questions about their willingness to provide contributions to the John Fraley <laughs> holiday fund or what? <laughs> I mean, you can do the MMSC and then you can do a scam awareness tool. I mean, I think it is nice that we can show that there's a way to perhaps predict who might be at risk of dementia. But what we really need is what can we do to prevent or to even treat these people? Gotcha. 100%. All right, cool. And uh, next up, I'm going to be discussing a study called Sex-Specific Differences in End-of-Life Burdensome Interventions and Antibiotic Therapy in Nursing Home Residents with Advanced Dementia. This was published in JAMA Network Open by a good friend and colleague, Nathan Stahl, who's a geriatrician here at the University of Toronto. It was published in August of 2019. What was the research question? So, you know, Nathan has developed a clear interest and expertise in, you know, care of individuals with dementia and research in this space. And the research question here was, what are the population-based frequency factors and sex-specific differences in burdensome interventions at the very end of life among nursing home residents with advanced dementia? And I can imagine a few reasons why this would be important. What did you think about the study? So I think it's really important that we have a sense of the frequency of burdensome procedures and interventions for people with end-stage dementia towards the end of life. I think it's really important that we ask ourselves whether or not these procedures are indicated and are we maximizing you know, quality of life here or are we focusing on something else? So how did they do the study? So this is a population-based court study using data from here in Ontario. What's really nice is that this database captures everyone in Ontario, and there's a sort of subset, uh, this other database, where it contains 27,000 nursing home residents with advanced dementia who died between 2010 and 2015. So this is an observational cohort study doing a deep dive to the subset of patients. And what did these patients look like? So as mentioned, there's approximately 27,000 in total, 71% were women. The median age at the time of death was 88. You know, just a reminder, this is a cohort where everyone died and 5% had a diagnosis of cancer, 86% lived in an urban area. Now we don't have a ton of other granular details about these individuals. And what were the main findings? So the main findings here were that in the last 30 days of life, burdensome interventions were common. So for example, 22% of these individuals were hospitalized, 10% were transferred to the emergency department, one in 10 uh, died in an acute care facility. And in all cases, the frequency of these events were higher for men than for women. So for example, the average percentage of hospitalization was 22, for women it was 19%, for men it was nearly 30%. A lot of other really interesting findings. So a third of individuals had physical restraints at some point in time. 10% received critical care for a life-threatening event. And finally, only 10% saw a palliative care doctor in the year before death. And those who did seemed to have lower odds of this burdensome care. What were some of the limitations? Well, I guess number one, how do you define burdensome care? Some of the definition used here were related to being hospitalized, being transferred to the emergency department. I'm sure there's many other ways that we could potentially define what is and what is not burdensome. I think another limitation is, you know, is this bad? You know, are these numbers good or bad? Like, how can we tell? Was all of this actually in line with the patient's wishes? And the other big question for me is, why was there this discrepancy between men and women? 
what's the take-home point? I think the take-home point is that we really need a coordinated strategy and plan for caring for older adults with dementia. I think geriatrics, as well as palliative care physicians, will have you know a crucial role to play in this moving forward. And how does this change how you manage patients? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you and I predominantly work in the inpatient setting. And I think by the time these patients are admitted to hospital and presenting to us, maybe it's sort of too late. But I think there's a really important role that we as general internists have that during these hospitalizations, that we have these conversations with the patients, their loved ones, about what would they want to have happen moving forward and how can we increase you know, supports in the community to make sure that we're not causing unnecessary harm to these patients, especially towards the end of their life. Yeah, I completely agree. So what do you have up for us next, John? So next, a really interesting study published in JAMA in July of this year. It's looking at the association of lifestyle and genetic risk with incidents of dementia. This was by Loretta et al. Cool. And what was the research question? They wanted to know if healthy lifestyle helps lower the risk of dementia, regardless of one's genetic risk. All right. And why was this study important in your mind? I think we know that the majority of dementia occurs sporadically, but there are some genetic markers that have been identified with increased risk for dementia. And in the general population, we also have evidence that healthy living is associated with lower risk of dementia. So the big question is, well, can lifestyle modify those even with higher genetic risk? Gotcha. And what was the study design here? This was a retrospective cohort study using United Kingdom data, over 500,000 participants in the cohort. They had patients that were over the age of 60 at baseline with genetic information available. They excluded anyone with baseline dementia or self-reported cognitive impairment. They looked at genetic risk by a few different important variants identified in other genome-wide studies, and they categorized people based on those SNPs as either low, intermediate, or high genetic risk for dementia. They also looked at healthy lifestyle as a score, and this was based on some common things, smoking status, physical activity, diet, moderation of alcohol, and it was a composite of, again, sort of low and high healthy lifestyle. Now, with regards to dementia, this was diagnosed using ICD-9 and 10 codes, and patients were followed until either the first diagnosis, death, loss to follow-up, or last date of hospital admission. Gotcha. And were they also asked about their scam awareness? That was not part of this study. Sure. So an important limitation that we'll just note uh, right <laughs> up front. So what did the included patients look like? So over 500,000 patients were assessed, and after you excluded those less than 60, those with prevalent dementia or those who did not have genetic information, there were about 196,000 people included. They had over 1.5 million person years of follow-up data, and there were about 1,700 cases of incident dementia. Now, there were higher proportions of men, some lower SES, and more stroke amongst those in the dementia group. Gotcha. And the main results for the study? So those with unfavorable lifestyle were more likely to develop dementia compared with those with a favorable lifestyle. And the hazard ratio was 1.35. They also showed that increasing genetic risk and increasing unhealthy lifestyle was more likely to develop dementia compared to those patients with a low genetic risk and a favorable lifestyle. There was another interesting result that in those with high genetic risk, but a favorable lifestyle score, they were associated with lower risk of dementia compared to those with an unfavorable lifestyle score. And what it really suggested was that 
one case of dementia might be preventable for each 121 individuals followed over 10 years amongst those with a high genetic risk who improve their lifestyle. And the other thing that was interesting is that even among low genetic risk groups, those with unfavorable lifestyles had a higher risk of dementia. Yeah, I mean, it really is interesting. And I think the other thing that sort of jumped out at me is that among the individuals with this like high genetic risk, it was like a percentage, 1% that developed dementia. And then the low percentage, low genetic risk, it's like half a percent. So it really goes to show you that it's not all about the genes, even when you're grouping these people into high genetic risk versus low genetic risk. So what are the main limitations of this study? Uh, this was observational data and the healthy lifestyle was not randomly assigned by virtue of how the study was designed. The lifestyle score itself hasn't been validated. The other limitation is that the generalizability is limited as the cohort was largely patients of European ancestry. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other tricky part here is that is it really this healthy lifestyle or is it something that's related to the healthy lifestyle or just the reporting of a healthy lifestyle? You know, they're looking at healthy lifestyle at time zero and then what happens 10 years later without accounting for how the lifestyle might have changed during that time period. So I, I think that's problematic as well. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that, you know, the take home is that healthy lifestyle does appear to be associated with a lower risk of dementia, regardless of one's genetic risk. So practice changing for you? I think it just encourages everyone to eat well, exercise, stop smoking, and drink in moderation. All right, so last up, this study is entitled Clinical Outcomes After Intensifying Antihypertensive Medication Regimens Among Older Adults at Hospital Discharge, published in JAMA Internal Medicine in August 2019. What was the research question for this study? So the research question was, what is the association between the intensification of an antihypertensive regimen at hospital discharge and clinical outcomes of hospitalized older adults with hypertension? This seems very applicable to most people in the hospital. Why is this an important study? So I think it's a really important study for a few reasons. You and I are hospitalists and not a day goes by that a patient is not hypertensive. So I guess a clear way of saying that is every single day, you know, we have hypertensive patients on our ward, and a lot of them are coming in for reasons that are unrelated to cardiac disease or their blood pressure. And the important question is, you know, is now the time for me to be up titrating their blood pressure medications? How do they design this study? So this was a retrospective cohort study it was performed using data from the Veteran Affairs database. It included everyone over the age of 65 with hypertension. These individuals were hospitalized for a non-cardiac condition and subsequently discharged from hospital, either with or without uh, intensified antihypertension uh, drugs. Uh, they were generally admitted with pneumonia, urinary tract infection, venous thromboembolism, and they were discharged to the community. And, you know, the sort of million dollar question is how do you define intensification of therapy? So that was either a new blood pressure medication that was being started or the individual had a dose increase of their medication by at least 20%. And the outcome here was readmission within 30 days, serious adverse events related to blood pressure medication like hypotension, syncope, acute kidney injury, and then the risk of cardiovascular events one year thereafter. Okay, so patients admitted not for reasons of blood pressure and were making changes to their medications. Who were these people? Yeah, and I think even one step further, they weren't coming in with a cardiac condition where you could argue, okay, like maybe we should, you know, up titrate their meds. So 
these individuals, as mentioned, this is a study using data from the VA, Veteran Affairs. So 98% were men. The average age was 77. 70% were Caucasian. They performed propensity score uh, matching to adjust for imbalances and baseline characteristics. And essentially, after matching, they had 4,000 patients, half who had intensification of their therapy and half who did not have intensification of their therapy. And it's quite interesting to see that the blood pressure in hospital was on average the same for these two groups um, after propensity score matching. What was the main finding? So for those who had intensified treatment for their hypertension, there was a 25% higher rate of readmission, a 40% higher rate of serious adverse events, and an 18% higher rate of cardiovascular events. You know, which I interpret as meaning not that these blood pressure medications also caused cardiovascular events, but instead, this was probably, you know, a higher risk, sicker group, these individuals who had intensification of their treatment. What were some of the limitations of this study? You know, I think this is a really well done study. And I should have mentioned up front, the first author is uh, Timothy Anderson, a really bright guy who just completed his training at UCSF and is now starting at the Brigham as a general internist. So I think methodologically a very strong study because this can be really hard to answer this question using non-randomized data. You know, the biggest limitation here is just confounding by indication. Do we really know enough factors to identify that it was the intensification of the treatment or instead that the people who are getting intensification were just sicker at baseline? What's your take-home point? You know, I think the take-home point maybe matches my gut feeling that, you know, maybe it's time to pause before automatically up titrating people's blood pressure meds while they're in hospital. You know, a patient's hospitalization, assuming all goes well, is a tiny slice of time relative to, you know, the years that they maybe had hypertension, for example. So I'm not sure if that inpatient hospitalization is the time to be up titrating blood pressure medications when they're not coming in with a cardiovascular condition that's the reason for admission or worsening of their blood pressure. Yeah, I think it gives me pause about making any major changes around the time of discharge. Uh, how will this change your practice? I think it will probably just encourage more restraint, give sort of more support towards, you know, ignore the systolic for the time being, let a bit more time pass, and maybe it's best assessed in follow-up by their primary care provider. Okay, great. All right, so I think that's it for episode number two. Uh, we have some extra time. So let's talk about the good stuff. The good stuff that we are talking about today. Well, John, why don't you go first? What's, what's caught your eye recently? Well, I am a bit of a music fan. And so for those of you that don't know, Katy Perry, who might not be my favorite artist, but she was involved in a lawsuit for copyright. But there's a very fascinating YouTube argument about why maybe she didn't do anything wrong. So I'll post the link. It's really interesting. Have a look at it. So wait, did she steal somebody's work or no? I don't think she did. So what was the accusation? Here? Well, the idea is that if you're going to say she stole it, then the person that she stole from probably stole from someone like Bach back in the day. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Not that I'll know, but what's the actual song in question oh, here? Oh, good question. Okay. I don't even remember. Okay, well, then you know what? We'll get our audio editor to insert a clip, maybe just of a few seconds yeah. so we don't get sued. Yeah, we got to avoid the copyright issue ourselves. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. And then for my good stuff, it'll actually be a link to a podcast a podcast by Adam Grant, 
And the title is When Work Takes Over Your Life, a really interesting podcast. And I love, you know, last five minutes of it where he interviews Chris Voss. Chris Voss was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI for over a decade. And he sort of has some beautiful pearls about negotiation and, you know, maybe how you can protect your time. Okay, great. Well, that's episode number two. Everyone, thanks a lot for listening. Roundstable listeners, we'll see you next time. All right, see you then. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thank you to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. We are also indebted to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director of The Rounds Table.